if you actually want racial justice and equity, what you can do is pay a living wage and you can transform society. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. This week, we bring you our interview with theater director Snehal Desai. In 2016, Snehal was named artistic director of the renowned theater company East West Players in Los Angeles, becoming only the fourth person to lead the nation's premier Asian American theater since its founding in 1965. East West Players was created by nine Asian American artists and ever since has been a bedrock of Los Angeles' vibrant theater scene. Under Snehal's leadership, the company has focused on new work, producing plays by some of the country's most admired artists, including Kui Gwen, Lauren Yi, and the writer after whom the main stage is named, Tony Award-winning playwright, screenwriter, and opera and musical librettist David Henry Wong. East West Players was in the news this past spring when, during a live stream of its annual Ovation Awards, the Los Angeles Stage Alliance, or LASA, not only mispronounced nominated actor Julie Lee's name, but also showed a photo of another Asian American actor. This final act of sloppiness and cultural erasure was too much for Snail. The next day, he wrote an impassioned statement on social media, succinctly stating why East-West Players was immediately withdrawing its membership in Lhasa. A host of other theaters soon followed suit, and Lhasa's board quickly decided to fold the organization. Snehal spoke to us from his home in Los Angeles. I started by asking him to tell us what this past year made clear to him about any systems that he'd want to reinvent in the American theater. East-West players, the thing that we're really reflecting on is, particularly during this time, is that we are very much just as much a social justice organization as we are a artistic theater company, um, and that we have a very visible platform from which we can, you know, affect change. And I, in, you know, affect change through storytelling is, I think, what drives my passion for theater uh, and the arts. And so, you know, a lot of what we've been thinking about now is empowerment through storytelling. So how can we, moving forward, empower our community? Um, And I'm talking not only about audiences, but also those folks uh, on the creative side. How can we um, empower them from and give them agency from experiences that they've endured of racism and discrimination and things like that. So um, I think that has been very much top of mind for us. We just did a show with Christina Wong where she worked with um, a number of folks who have been formerly incarcerated who are API or have immediate family members who are incarcerated. And to hear their stories about how in prison, um, you know, the guards either call folks black, white, or other, or sometimes they call some groups Hispanic. But if you're Asian, you're basically just known as other, and you're literally called other. And you feel also the monolith of Asian and Asian American when you're suddenly thrown together. They think, you know, all the Asians are clumped together, but we know it that means being Vietnamese American and Korean American and Thai American. Um, so not everyone speaks the same language or has the same background. Um, and then inextricably tied to that is oftentimes lots of issues related to immigration. 
And so the experience for those individuals to tell their story was it was such a humanizing experience for them from where they were coming from. Uh, this is what they have talked about, as well as empowering them to take kind of control of their own stories and their narratives, you know, post their time in prison. Um, and so that's just been top of mind for me as we move forward, particularly as the Asian American community continues to be under attack. The other thing that is coming into play is kind of decolonizing practices and the hold of capitalism on our art form in this country. Um, and to me, that is where there is a ton of work to be done because, you know, we have a model where the apex of the, you know, of theater in America is Broadway, which is for-profit theater, right? And so that, if that is still kind of the culminating thing where we say this is the best of what we do, you know, it's almost like we have to cut it off at the head because we're worshiping a for-profit capitalist model. And that's just driving everything so that this idea of bigger is better, the larger the institution, the more prestigious it is somehow, automatically, it seems. But, you know, at the heart of it, artists work hard for their what they're doing and they want to get paid. And oftentimes those bigger venues also provide the biggest paycheck. And so I've been thinking about, you know, are there ways to disrupt that system and then to um, the other thing is the for-profit model, the 501c3 structure creates a certain hierarchy of being, particularly with a board, and how it, does that all kind of impact the way we create the art we do? How have we been programmed to gather so that when we are in a room, we know when we enter a theater, you know, our job is to be quiet and to sit back in our seat. Our job is to, you know, how, why can't we eat in most theaters, right? Why is there not a, a celebration or a party feeling versus kind of this very like, you're afraid to make a move because someone's gonna shush you. To me, it, it, it's just taking a look at, you know, how communities and folks gather, right? What are, what are ways that ritual and tradition is celebrated in our communities and in our towns and our societies and, um, culturally and ethnically, and how has those practices not necessarily translated or been brought into a theatrical space? Particularly what's interesting about Eastern traditions of theater practices is that they tend to be tied to religion, right? So it tends to be religious-based storytelling when you think about South Asian dance forms, right? Kathakali or Bharatanatyam and stuff like that. There is a religious intersection of with the storytelling and kind of a mythology that you also are basing creating the craft around. And so for me, it's it's looking at a little bit of that kind of stuff and saying, you know, what is missing? What is very, very different? What are these barriers of accessibility that we've created? Um, and, I, and I think it's, yeah, it's one of those things where it's okay to sit down and dream and say, you know, if we start from a blank slate and build up, what does that look like? And that means as much of deprogramming the way I think about theater or I think about producing and I think about the headaches of, you know, of, of dealing with unions and payrolls and insurance um, and letting that stuff take a secondary seat. I, I love this book called, called Salsa, Soul and Spirit by Juan Borda. I don't know if you folks know that book. No, I don't know it. Um, I really, really love it. And where she kind of takes the lens of looking at uh, Native American, Black, and I believe it's Latino cultures, and kind of those traditions of how they gather, right? Of 
a lot of what they do is centered around food, but it's also centered around just bring, you know, bring your friends, bring a couple people with you. Or if someone's hanging out at your house, you bring them with you. It's not like, oh, did you reserve a ticket or a seat? Um, you know, and you make room for that person. And then I love how she connects to kind of ancestry and legacy, that um, idea of Sankofa, you know, of looking seven generations ahead and seven generations back. If there is one thing that you could completely dismantle and reinvent, something uh, perhaps shocking, but I'm sure you've thought about this, what, what would be the first thing that you would change about the way we bring theater to our communities? And I can start with East-West Players. The first thing that I would change is our space. I love our space. Um, We are in a historic building in Little Tokyo. Um, It's a church that's been converted. But it is the, the, the space dictates and restricts so much of the way we gather, um, of the stories that we tell um, versus, you know, for, me, for us to be in a much more fully flexible venue, I think would very much change both what we produce as work, but also the experience. Um, we have this wonderful courtyard that I love that I think is actually the heart of our organization because that's where folks can freely gather, particularly being in a, in a historic building in a church. Um, you know, we're not uh, accessible to the degree that we would love to be. Um, it, you know, it's virtually impossible to be able to get, say, a a wheelchair up on our stage, right? Like it just, it just would take a, we, we've, we want to, we tried, um, uh, you know, there's things that we've put in, but it, it's just very hard. Those accessibility factors are also kind of top of mind, particularly as we build, we're looking at kind of changing building structures potentially for COVID um, uh, protocols uh, and regulations. And so are there other things that we can kind of, you know, add in there. So the space is one big thing for me. The other thing is, you know, frankly, um, and it's not, I don't want to (laughs) go on the record as someone who's like anti-union or anything like that. But, you know, the, the unions dictate a lot of how we make art rather than the artists and the art and the storytelling dictating them. I can kind of dream and, you know, the thing I can do is create the space and the room for artists, but ultimately it's artists moving into that space and them creating the worlds, you know what I mean, that they want um, us to inhabit uh, and experience and to help us envision forward. You know, ultimately for me, it's about creating as free and open and loose a structure of a space and getting out of the way, but it's really making sure that we center the artists and are responsive to them when they're like, you know, what needs to happen is this show needs to not happen in your space uh, for these reasons. So you must have had to deal with unions during the pandemic. How, how, how did that go? So I'll hit it on the, uh, <laughs> yeah, let me flip it a little bit and talk about kind of some of the positive things that I think are coming out of the pandemic for, particularly for theater. And I kind of hit it in three ways. One, I think moving forward, there will be much more emphasis, I'm hoping, uh, on new work, because with new work, we can put in 
rights for streaming and digital and things like that. So moving forward, I think, you know, that's where I've been putting our emphasis at East West Players is that, you know, I love doing Assassins, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to, you know, stream my production of Assassins. The three other new plays we're doing in the season, yes, we're putting that into the contracts that we're going to record this um, and that we will air them, you know, during the run or afterwards. So I think that the, the emphasis of what we end up producing because it wants to be multi-platform accessible is one I positive see. thing. And and the creators have been open and open to that and excited about it. Yes, for the okay. most part, I would say so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those who aren't are going to be, you know, it, it's a conversation to bring them along. I under it, it, what I think we see is that if we do your show, you know, particularly now as we get to in person, I'm not going to oftentimes stream it during a run. But after a run, is there any reason we couldn't stream the show for a week or two weeks um, for folks who are outside of our town? You know, because now we have national and international audiences who have seen our work. And it doesn't mean that just because I do this, that a theater in Portland isn't going to do your show. You know what I mean? So I think that is one thing. I think the other, a second big thing is that it, you know, theater and live performance is a hyper- local form and the now that's going to become even more localized in terms of talent right so i think it's going to be it's going to be very hard and costly to bring in actors from other cities or to tour productions i think there's just so many safety things and th- and stuff like that so i think the companies that have done it and are on a certain scale will continue to do it but i think um otherwise you know particularly if we have outbreaks again and have to open and close, which everyone's saying we should always be prepared for moving forward, that means hiring locally because you're not going to be able to indefinitely house folks or bring them into town for contracts. So I think that's something interesting. What's interesting is we're going to become more localized in the talent we use, but our reach is now much greater, is national or international because of virtual And the third thing is time. I think the interesting thing that has happened now is time and duration of work. So now we can watch pieces that are five minutes um, or we can watch pieces that are six hours. So the work and the artist and the storytelling is dictating the duration of time that they need. I think this is also what we've seen with streaming services, right? So, you know, if a show wants to be three episodes and that's a season, it can do that. So that's what we've seen in the virtual space. And I'm hoping that that will continue and translate as we get into the in-person space so that every experience is not 90 minutes or two hours with an intermission. But, you know, it can be 30 minutes if that's what the artists want. Or it can be, I think, I don't know about you, I love long durational experiences so it could run all night. And, and I think folks are very much open now to that um, and I think it's bringing the rest of our kind of institutional infrastructure along with that. I wonder if, if we can talk about what happened with the um, the awards show and the LA Stage Alliance. Can you take us through the steps of experiencing seeing that uh, show online and then the decisions that you had to take? Who else was involved before you drafted and published that statement that you wrote? Felt like an inflection point. How did how did you decide to grab it? So yeah, yes, I'm happy to talk about. It. The funny thing is, I think the interesting thing is, we I actually had no idea how things were going to land. Um, but I want to. I, what I want to do is, I want to take it back because 
What really fed that moment goes back to, you know, June of last year, uh, of May and June of last year. So after, you know, George Floyd's murder, we saw a lot of folks make a lot of statements, right? And to me, at first it was like, that was the least you could do, right? It, It doesn't cost you anything to make a statement. And it was very interesting to see how long it took folks to make statements and how I I was hearing from artistic leaders, how long it was taking them because they were having to wordsmith with their boards and their staffs and all this stuff. And then it, you know, what really changed for me personally was when I started to see say, you know, Walmart and Nike and Amazon and all these corporations start to put statements out And to me, which I was like, they mean nothing, because if you actually want racial justice and equity, what you can do is pay a living wage and you can transform society, right? Like that is what Walmart can do. That is what Amazon can do, right? Rather than release a statement, if you want to do this, just, you know, you have to change your system of operation and your business model. And if you do that, you could transform whole towns and cities and millions of lives. And so to me, then the statements meant nothing um, without, say, timelines and accountability built in. And so I think that is where I was, that is where we were, you know, kind of last year in the summer after George Floyd. And, um, you know, I would say as an artistic leader, we're kind of asked, a lot of these, this continued, right? So like I, we actually, any Swiss players have kind of um, slowed down because you were doing statements around every shooting, you were doing statements around COVID. You were, and, and it was, again, it was like, you know, it was, it was great to, to express that you were out there and for folks to know, but why were you doing that? Was it to feel better? Was it to be patted on the back? Was it because everyone was doing it and you were being called out if you weren't? Um, you know, so it felt so performative to me so that, you know, when the LA Stage Alliance show happened, it was, I had seen the show actually the morning of, so I, I didn't see kind of in live what was happening. Then I started to see folks make some comments and stuff like that. And to me, I was like, Yes, we can release a statement and we can say this is, um, you know, this was not a great representation um, of the Asian American community. And, it, you know, it really affected Julie Lee, who just a few months before then I had had on a panel talking about the racism she had experienced um, in the industry and, and in just in life in general up until this point. So to me, it came to what am I going to do more than a statement, right? And what are we going to do to empower? The other thing I'm always thinking about, as I've mentioned, is how can we empower ourselves, right? Why are we feeling disempowered? And how can we take power back? And what I realized was I was like, A, we're paying into, we're paying this organization to diminish us, right? We're paying this organization to not respect us, um, you know? And the thing about all of the LA Stage Alliance stuff was like, a lot of this stuff was long uh, brewing for a long time. I, I think Pierre Carlo, you know, like a lot of these issues were systemic and long-term. So it wasn't one of those things where also we had not tried for many years to work with this organization that itself was struggling uh, and having challenges. So, you know, for me, it was like, well, why do that? Why not? We don't need to pay into that system. We can take our money and take power back for ourselves 
and do something else if we want, right? Um, just because, you know, clearly this is a system and organization that is not listening to us or hearing us over multiple years of trying and attempts. So, you know, and it doesn't share our values. So that was one way I felt like we could take action as an organization. Um, and then the second was, well, you know, I, I started to see folks, you know, other folks post things on social media. And it was one of those things where actually, you know, if, if you really believe this, then you also, you know, if other folks want to take action, you can join us, right? That is one step you can do to join us to show um, solidarity. And it's also because, you know, as we know, you know, in all systems, money talks. And it, it, to me, it felt like until we could kind of affect the stream of income to an, this organization that they weren't going to necessarily change. And so that was where kind of some of the initial thoughts came uh, that led to crafting the statement. The funny, the interesting thing is I have learned the power of a good hashtag, <laughs> like it literally a good hashtag. Yes, I see how it can change the world. Um, because the hashtag leaving Lhasa was kind of like, you know, I am not a big social media person. I am not the one, you know, I didn't think um, we would be starting a trend, something that would trend or anything like that. It was kind of the afterthought after the, you know, after we crafted the statement was um, we wanted something that encapsulated what we wanted, you know, that it, that encapsulated what we were going to do. And then I had a really wonderful marketing manager who <laughs> took that last little thing, at, you know, at the bottom of my message and, you know, made that kind of the, the top of the asset that went public. So, I mean, I think the other thing was we were kind of the small domino, right? So I think the things at the award were a part of a much larger set of issues um, that we then saw those dominoes kind of fall and, you know, I think for us, it was also lifting up our friends at Deaf West, you know what I mean? So that they had artists nominated and they had requested that the show be um, accessible to them. And they kind of were, you know, ignored um, in their request. And they, it's also one of those things where as a member theater, they shouldn't have to request it every year, <laughs> um, which is what they had to do. And again, you know, I understand that LA Stage Alliance is, was struggling. It was a small team, but they also you know, didn't really reach out for volunteers or help on a larger scale. And, you know, that's the thing with virtual and digital. That was the thing about the response was that if, had it been live, I don't know if it would have been what it would have been because sometimes when things like this happen live, you can't rewind. And oftentimes you're sitting there going, wait, did I, did I hear that they called her jelly instead of Julie? Right. <laughs> you know, and you might confirm around you, but here when it's virtual um, or digital, we can see it over and over again. So it, it's, you know, that's where you have to be that much more on point. So I, what I will say, the two big ripple effects that we've seen nationally is, A, I think everyone is looking at awards again. And I think awards have pros and cons. Yes, I think you want to recognize amazing work and artists. And yes, awards provide visibility. Uh, and also just a, an opportunity for celebration, right? Folks work very hard in our in our field. But also, the structure of awards is so inequitable for so long and has been. And so I think that is one thing that I'm hearing throughout the country in terms of awards on all scales um, in theater, really looking at their practices and what, you know, a, a better or more equitable system could be there. Um, and then I think these umbrella organizations are really looking at 
uh, like uh, LA Stage Alliance are looking at how they serve their membership and what role they want to play in terms of accountability for their membership. So is it pay to play? Anyone who joins can, you know, anyone who pays a fee can join, um, which already is problematic. Or are we going to make it so that people can join, but, uh, you know, there's accountability if they um, are not living up to the standards that, you know, kind of have been mutually agreed upon by the community. We've talked about your leadership and management style. Let's end this interview by talking about your own artistry. What projects or challenges are you looking forward to tackling next? To me, um, getting more site-specific with work and then um, the role of technology. I think theater artists are slow to embrace technology oftentimes, or there's a fear or there's financial barriers. And we are going to have to up our game to continue working virtually and digitally. But to me, it's also um, how can we engage folks, you know, site-specific and utilize our iPhones, right? So we're working with Rogue Artists Ensemble on a sequel to our the Kaidan project, which we did, which will be kind of it's an app that is you take a journey and it's GPS triggered and there's a virtual reality component so that you can be at the center of it. It can start to snow in your living room and then you can get up and, you know, parts of the story unlock as you also um, wonder. So, you know, I think that's where there's, we operate in such a limited spectrum oftentimes in our field and there are so, there is so much, and, you know, how can we break out of the naturalism and the kitchen sink dramas and all of that stuff um, to just embrace new forms? And I think more and more audiences want to be at the center of experiences. I mean, that's what's happening at theme parks and places like that. And I think that's great. I think that's wonderful to be able to do. The thing that really strikes me about this interview, Pierre Carlo, is he's so... Uh, speaking directly to sort of the evolving nature of our society uh, and doing it through the lens of the arts and and for him, the theater. And in that, you know, I'm hearing this real clarity of um, social justice being paramount and at the forefront of the movement and the way the arts should be impacting the world. And then secondly, the the great impact that technology and social media and the power of those tools uh, to impact society. Rather than fume over having been affronted by Lhasa, he quickly gathered his constituents, came up with a terse and impactful statement, and then got it out to a yep. wide audience. He he got a large followership to back him up. And that shows a leader who really understands the way the world works today. He's clearly forward-leaning on where we might be headed and how art is delivered, how people perceive art, um, how we experience art, what the rules of engagement might be. And I think the last experience just helped reinforce that there's no need to sit back and just take it, but that artists can really push the boundary and create the change they want to see themselves. Yeah. It looks like LA theater is in for a big welcome change and he'll be at the forefront. Yes. If you'd like to learn more about Snehal, please head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating so more listeners can find us. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. Thanks for listening.